Hello, uh, it's the album years again. Yes, we're back uh, as the world turns to shit. You can always rely <laughs> on us to talk bollocks about lots of music that no one cares about anymore, except us and hopefully the people that are listening to us. So, Tim, uh, we're, we're talking about 1998, is that right? 1998, yeah. This is hip by our standards. This is only 22 years ago. This is pretty with it, isn't it? Yes, for us, yes. So... And one of the reasons that we were sort of slightly trepidatious about revisiting the 90s is because I think when we did our previous 90s episode, which, I correct me if I'm wrong, was 92, was it? Or it 90s? was, yeah. 92. We really struggled, didn't we, to come up with, you know, uh, a list of, of albums that we thought were worth discussing. Um, but we haven't had this problem with 1998. So I think maybe we were, you know, our fears were unfounded. In fact, we've got a pretty... Pretty healthy list here, I would say. I, I think so, pretty healthy and pretty eclectic. And I think you're right. I think 92, I was kind of a bit worried and thinking, are we going to find less and less that we like as the decade goes on? But then I remembered at the time that, you know, 1990, 91 was pretty great. 93, 94 had some fantastic releases. So for whatever reason, 1992, in terms of what it had to offer, didn't really appeal to us. And sometimes I wonder if it was kind of, you know, it was the year that we were sort of signed, releasing our first albums and whether we were as aware, but sometimes I think maybe it was just a pretty bad year. You know, if nothing else, it shows that we do kind of land on these years almost at random, don't we? We don't kind of think about, oh, this album and that album was in that year. We just kind of say, let's do, and we kind of pick a year out of the uh, air, don't we? And we did that with 1992 and kind of paid yeah. the price. <laughs> um, and we've done the same here. And, and I think we've been very pleasantly surprised. As I say, we haven't, we haven't had a repeat of that particular experience this time there's been lots of interesting albums that we were very happy to talk about but before we do that it's as is customary we must have the complaints and errata section which is where I kind of hand over to you Tim because you monitor all the um, comments <laughs> and stuff well actually I had a few really interesting recommendations uh, from people this time around so albums from 69 that I'd not heard of and um one person was talking about uh, the Bee Gees. He, he was glad we mentioned the Bee Gees album. They said, well, actually, if you're looking for a mainstream band making experimental music during that time, the Four Seasons made some kind of psychedelic mm. album. And so there were a few kind of interesting um, recommendations from people. Generally speaking, not as many errors, though I've got to say, uh, they were all on your side, the errors, apparently. And what of a course. few people are thinking... I mean, I think they're thinking this, is that whichever university granted you that professorship, they should be requesting it back because okay. you made you made a terrible let, error. Let, give, give me the... <laughs> well, I know one error I made. I said that the Neil Young album, Everyone Knows This Is Nowhere, isn't a Crazy Horse album. Yeah. And of course, it is a Crazy Horse album, but it's Crazy Horse before the classic lineup. It's the Danny Witten Crazy Horse. T to be fair, that was the main one. In truth, okay. about three yes. people picked yes. up on that. One person, it was a very specific mistake, which, to be honest, I wouldn't have known whether you were right or whether you were wrong, even though I know a lot about the artist. But mm. apparently it said that Nick Drake died of an overdose of sleeping pills when it was actually antidepressants. My research assistant will be fired uh, immediately as a consequence of that. Is, that. is that Bowie the dog? Bowie was my research assistant on the yeah. on the on the Nick Drake. Yeah, yeah, that's very poor, Bowie. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah other than that, a couple of complaints saying that um, I sounded as if I was conducting it from my toilet. Weirdly, I was in my special recording space, which was not sounding at its best that day. It must be said. Um, a couple of people have said that they've been creating drinking games around the album years, which I quite liked. And um, one person said that I have a drink 
every time Tim or Stephen say sort of. And then they calculated that apparently you'd said it 48 times and I'd said it 32 times wow. in the last okay. one. Um, another person said, yes, we have a drinking game in which we have one shot for every time Tim says absolutely, which I've got to say, okay. I, I do say, and I noticed that myself. Yeah, well, it um, just shows you how much you agree with me all the time, Tim, which is, uh, you know. What am I going to say? I agree with you most emphatically, Mr. Wilson. Would that be better? I'd like you to. I'd like you to do that every time in this episode. <laughs> you feel the urge to say absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'd all... like you to say. I say. I completely <laughs> concur, Mr. Wilson. No, Professor. Professor I completely Wilson. concur, Professor Wilson. <laughs> well said. Though you may be wrong about the tablets. Yes, I'll, I'll do that one. Um, two shots every time they mention Robert Fripp, even if he hasn't released anything during the year. Right. Well, that's you. <laughs> I've noticed that too. You shoehorn Robert Fripp into every fucking conversation about every fucking album we talk about. Okay. I loves him. Right, go on. And what else? Uh, three shots every time Mr. Wilson mentions industrial music. You shoehorn it in anything. The Four Seasons, Nick Drake. The Bee Gees. The Bee yeah, Gees. Uh, are we talking about industrial music today? I don't think we are, actually. We're not, but I will get no. Robert Fripp mentioned, and I probably will say, absolutely. I think you did put about eight Robert Fripp albums on the list, and I took them all off. <laughs> well, we should have. There's a, look, you've got to do Come on. He did The Gates of Paradise, Studio took it off. Soundscapes, took it off. and took he did Project Two this year. The projects. Right. No, I took them off. <gasps> I took them off. But you'll still manage to shoehorn him in, I've no doubt. I will. Okay, so listen, 1998. Let's let's start now. Um, I remember. Now I might be wrong. This is my, where my memory might be wrong, and we might get some complaints about this. I seem to remember buying two albums on the same day that I was incredibly excited about. So in my memory, they came out the same Monday because things were released mm -hmm. on a Monday at this time in in, in the 90s. I remember changed that. to Fridays now, but it was always a Monday, wasn't it? I seem to remember these two albums came out on the same Monday and I went to the local hour price to buy them on the day of release because I was so excited about both of them. One of them completely lived up to expectations and the other one was a disaster, okay. but a fascinating disaster. And they are the self-titled Mark Hollis solo album, and Goldie's Saturn's <laughs> Return. Now, now, see if you can guess which way round. Well, obviously, it's going to be the Goldie album that you thought was a masterpiece and Hollis slightly disappointed you. The Hollis album, I think, is a classic. And it's very interesting because I was reading up about it on Wikipedia. And, of course, it was originally sent out to, to the press and to the media as a Talk Talk album. Um, and yes, I think it was yeah. called The Mountains of, of Mars or, or The Mountains of the Moon or something like that. And it was only subsequent to, to the press copies going out that Mark presumably decided, no, that he wanted, to, wanted it to be uh, presented as his solo record. And of course, it does beg the question, where does a Talk Talk album end and a Mark Hollis solo album begin? Um, it's a difficult one. I mean, at the time, because I, I bought both of those albums probably in the same week of release, although I remember buying them on different days. The Hollis, I remember being slightly disappointed by at the time. I love it. I think it's a classic. I think it's timeless. It's a beautiful piece of work. But I remember feeling that it wasn't quite as brave sonically as Laughingstock or Spirit of Eden. But, but do you not think that was deliberate? It was almost like he was 
he was trying to go for something very understated um, and timeless, almost like, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I think the whole idea of that album was it was recorded direct to stereo. There was no multi-tracking involved. Mm. It was literally just setting up the musicians in the space and recording the take, various takes of the songs directly to, to stereo analog tape. So there was no opportunity for that kind of extreme post-production that albums like Laughing Stock and Spirit of Eden had been through, where they're kind of almost sculpting the sound that they've captured. This is very much a different beat. I suppose yeah. in a way that's, that answers my own question. You know, where does a Talk Talk album end and where does a Mark Collis solo album begin? And that is, I think that's the main differentiating factor here, isn't it? That it seems very much like a live performance without any of that kind of ambitious studio trickery that's very much a hallmark of, of the previous records. Yeah, I agree completely. And I think that, um, you know, we had this with, say, David Sylvian and uh, Secrets of the Beehive, that that was a very natural sounding mm. album that came after some highly processed and experimental albums. And it's now my favourite Sylvian solo album. But at the time, I was slightly disappointed that he'd not taken on some of those radical ideas further. And I guess that was my initial feeling. In retrospect, I think the Mark Hollis album is a beautiful, timeless piece of work that I wouldn't change. But at the time, I think I wanted to be taken somewhere different. And so there was a slight sense of disappointment, even though, of course, I greatly enjoyed it and thought it was a powerful piece of work. And you're right, you know, that is the main difference between the Talk Talk and the Hollis. The Hollis is Talk Talk with all of the studio affectation stripped off. It's got a wonderful kind of tentative quality to it, hasn't it? Almost as if they're not they're not quite completely inhabiting the songs. They're still kind of finding them. Yeah. Uh, particularly particularly with the kind of the way the woodwinds play. It's almost like they play phrases and the phrases kind of end mid-thought. Uh, it's almost like the, the, the phrases aren't quite complete. It's Well, I think the woodwinds perhaps are the one distinguishing feature of this album. If you wanted... Um, one particular sound that differentiated this from Spirit of Eden and Laughingstock. It's the use of um, almost a woodwind quartet throughout, isn't it? Which is a clarinet mm. quartet. And it's very, mm. very beautiful. And yes, there is a tentative quality and the songs almost feel that they could fall apart at any moment. Mm. It's very fragile, isn't it? Even the way he's singing, it's almost like he's barely getting above a whisper. And you you can kind of hear... Um, the you know the hiss the hiss on the tape is sometimes louder yeah, yeah. than than the music because it's so quiet and it's so minimal it's so reserved um, and of course you know history tells us that that was the last that was the last time we would ever make a record I don't think we ever thought that at the time we were thinking oh this is part of a this is part of a continuum of Mark Hollis you know recordings but of course it it turned out that that was the kind of headstone, the gravestone on his career, he never recorded again. So I suppose in a way we kind of look at it differently now to the yeah. way that we would have looked at it then, where we were thinking, oh, this is the next this is the next Hollis Talk Talk album. Well, I hope the next one's going to be a bit different again. But of course there never was a different one. So it, it does feel almost like an epitaph to his, you know, to his career in a way, doesn't it? It's got that kind of simple, fragile tentative beauty of someone that's kind of leaving something behind almost. I don't know yeah. if that's being too poetic. In a way. No, I, I think you're right. And I think that you can hear that in some senses, the Mark Hollis album is the polar opposite of the Talk Talk debut, isn't it? Um, it's yes. a completely different universe. And you're only talking 16 years. And it's, I remember at the time people saying that he's moving towards silence in a way. And in retrospect, that makes an awful lot of sense that he's moving towards some kind of purity, some kind of silence. 
And I guess he felt that he'd completed his journey. And sometimes if, if that is, you know, your concept, your approach to music, he perhaps achieved it. You know, because I've always thought this with, with you and I, that we sometimes move towards silence. We sometimes move towards noise. We sometimes move towards pop. We sometimes move towards experimental. And perhaps in some ways we have musical um, ADHD compared to Hollis, who seemed to have this amazing sense of focus throughout his career. That's interesting. A couple of things you picked up on there. You've, you've mentioned the fact that there's no noise element to this album. And of course, when you listen to, to albums like Laughing Stock, particularly, say, the, the feedback solo on After the Flood, that there is a very strong influence of the aesthetics of noise, isn't there? Yeah. And that is, that is completely gone on this record, isn't it? It's all about the beauty, the space. And also the other thing I think you mentioned there, which, I, which I definitely resonates with me, is it almost seemed like this album was the, the logical step towards him being completely mute for the rest of his for his life you know that mm. this is the step towards falling into complete silence uh, which is a very poetic way of looking at it but i think that makes perfect sense when you listen to this record this is obviously him retreating and the next logical step is to simply say nothing and to mm. make no sound at all yeah it's incredibly brave you know but it's a wonderful record, isn't it? I think it's one of those records that just much, much like a lot of the Talk Talk uh, or the Hollis catalogue, it just gets better and better with age, doesn't it? It's so, it's partly because it's so removed from time. In its own way, it was an anachronism at the time. And in mm. a way that kind of serves it very well, it remains somehow out. Yeah, well, I think, I think it is going to, you know, it has gained in status and it will gain in status further. And, and it deserves to. I mean, it's not my favourite Hollis' work, I think I really like that trilogy of Colour of Spring mm. leading to Laughing Stock, really, The Spirit of Eden. There's something in those three albums that managed to be communicative as well as experimental. And I guess that's where my heart lies in music. So this isn't my favourite of his albums. So I, I suppose one comparison is with one of my favourite albums, Pink Moon. I think that Pink Moon has that leading towards silence, you know, in Nick Drake's career as well. And it's a very stripped down, very simple acoustic Album. I mean, this is a lot more harmonically complex than Nick Drake, of course. I think one of the things I'm really keen to get away from with this podcast is perhaps to try and persuade people in a way to stop thinking about, you know, an artist's catalogue as, oh, this is the best album. That's, you know, that's the weakest album. That's mm. the best album. Is to kind of see... Um, an artist's catalogue as a body of work. And the fact that every album in that catalogue is different is kind of what makes it special. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, we talk about Mark Collins. It's not your favourite. I don't know if it's my favourite too, but I love the fact that it has a perfectly unique place in his oeuvre, in his catalogue. Mm. I would say at this point, I concur with your observations, Professor Wilson. So let's move on to the other album. I, I remember buying the same day as Mark Collins. And I, I, I said... I say this again, I might be completely wrong about this and the memory has very has ways of playing strange tricks on you. I seem to remember buying this album the same day and I was very excited about it because I had I had really loved uh, the, the previous record and I'd loved the ambition about it. I was very much into drum and bass. Um, I was a big fan of artists like Fotec at the time as well. Um who also released an album this year called Form and Function, which is a classic. But but I think we decided we want to talk about the Goldie album, Saturn's Return, because there's something about it that screams folly, isn't it? It's, <laughs> it's so... It's a double CD, and the first CD has two songs, one of which is over an hour long. Um, and mm. it's kind of a fusion of drum and bass and orchestral music and these kind of bizarre falsetto vocals, which I seem to remember by... 
Golder himself, is that right? He does sing some of it, yeah. He has other singers on it as well. I mean, I remember this because I bought this in Manchester R Price at the time, and I may have told you the story before, but I went into the store and um, I said, oh, sorry, have you got Goldie Sands Return? And um, the woman at the counter then asked, um, who I assume was the manager, and said, um, hey, Jeff, have we got the Goldie album? Aye. And said, what's it like? Fucking Fucking shakes. I knew that was coming. Yeah. <laughs> and I was thinking, well, here I am, paying my money for the album, which I've been told was fucking shite. Only in the north of England would you get that response. Well, I love that. I, I love that. I mean, I, unfortunately, I could easily have been that shopkeeper. <laughs> that, that, that was largely my review of the album when I heard it. And, you know, I was very... Everything about it, I mean, like the, this 60-minute piece that fuses drum and bass yeah, yeah. with orchestral sounds, falsetto voice, and it's, it's like a... It's like a, a prayer to his mother, uh, Shades of David Essex in Stardust there, yeah. uh, if, you, if you get my reference there, Tim. Um, <laughs> I certainly do. You do. So hopefully some people listening to will, will, will also get that reference. Um, and everything about it sounded so pretentious in a way that I loved. Yeah. But the reality of it, unfortunately, was turgid. Um, and just didn't work. And, and that's still my memory of it today. And I've listened to it once, I think about 10 years ago, I, I thought maybe it wasn't as bad as I remembered it. And I listened to it again and it was as bad as I remembered it. Um, so, Tim, you, but you're going to defend it. You're going to defend it. Go ahead, defend it. Well, you see, for me, this is the topographic oceans of, of drum and bass. This is the magnificent folly. You know, it's Arvo Pear with beats. Um, I mean, for people who've not heard this, it begins with about two minutes of electronic buzzing. It then goes into an almost Eno soundscape. The beats don't actually come in until about 27 minutes. And so it has what sounds like frippatronics, soundscape. Ah, he's done it. Okay, uh. that's the first drink there. Okay, it's right, true okay, number though. one, number one, carry on. And then um, there's a female vocalist initially singing mother and it's a beautiful sort of four note progression and um you know i've complained about the length of cds this is a cd being used to perfection 75 minutes one cd 75 minutes the other cd this is a quadruple album in old money and the first track is 60 minutes mostly it, it develops into a rhythm about as i said 27 minutes in and then towards the end breaks down to the whole point of having the buzzing and the orchestral tones again. Quite beautiful. My sad story about this one is that I saw a documentary, because at the time it was, you know, it was quite an important album. And uh, there's a documentary on Channel 4, and he did write this as a hymn to his mother. And um, he's playing it to his mother. And after about two minutes, his mother's going, Hey, got any fags, lad? I mean, to be fair, that's the experience I always had with my father as well, with my music, but, you know. But, I mean, lest we, lest we forget, there's a lot of other music on the album too. There's a collaboration with David Bowie, which I also seem, seem to remember as being uh, ridiculous and, and just not very good. <laughs> well, this, so what, well, okay, come on, you've got to get the listeners involved in this. because So 60 yeah. minutes of, yeah. as I said, Arvo Perk goes drum and bass, this heartfelt hymn to his mother, followed by a seven-minute track with David Bowie, and this is over really warped keyboards, no rhythm whatsoever. There's some dissonant, almost free jazz piano, and Bowie, I think, is singing a suicide note that Goldie had written when he was a teenager. And it's Bowie at his most tuneless, but it's fascinating singing. The That particular album, um, if you like, disc one, closes 
with about four minutes of Goldie's voice in reverse. It's absolutely fearless. And then side two is slightly more conventional, opens with a track with Noel Gallagher called uh, Temper Tempo, which is a sort of furious, um, quite discordant um, drum and bass piece, but has an amazing 16-minute kind of, if Weather Report were a drum and bass band, a track called Dragonfly, very, very beautiful melodies, harmonies, great playing. I mean, listen, Tim, don't get me wrong. I, I, everything about this album I loved on paper. But the reality, unfortunately, was very, very disappointing. It just seems so much of the, the ambition, so many of the ideas just fell flat and just didn't work. And you could admire it. You could admire it on an intellectual level. But if, you, if it just doesn't come across as very good in the end, then, you know, then it doesn't really matter, does it? Um, and that's, that's the issue. And, and, you know, this whole thing, this music by the yard. I mean, uh, the previous album had also been a double CD, remember? Yeah. Um, and it was also too long. There was also Ronnie, Ronnie Size's New Forms album, which came out around this time too, which I, which I did like. But again, it was a double CD, over two hours of music, too long. Just too long. Music by the yard. Well, this is one of the things I'm going to address in 1998. One of the things that's quite interesting is that that kind of spirit of progressive and jazz rock pretension that you thought had been buried by punk and post-punk came back with a vengeance. You know, a lot of the drum and bass artists were making quite conceptual works, in a sense, and very ambitious and using space. I mean, you know, yeah, this is an album that goes way beyond something like topographic in terms of its excess. And I admire that. You know, I admire Goldie for following his vision completely, the same with Ronnie Size. And I do agree with you in the sense that these albums were often overlong, the ideas overstayed their welcome. But I was actually really quite pleased that they existed and there were artists who were prepared to go down in flames with their ideas and with their beliefs because it sort of followed a period that was more mundane to my mind in in my view grunge and Britpop and I kind of wonder if this period of excess that you saw okay computer represents it to an extent um, certainly some of the drum and bass artists do whether it was a reaction to that more mundane more rootsy um, MTV unplugged grunge and um, Britpop sensibility that was around in the mid nineties, you know, early to mid nineties. I think you're right, but there's something. There was something particularly about the drum and bass movement. I mean, drum and bass was a movement that seemed to come and burn itself out relatively quickly. I would say within the space of you know two or three years, and and I really liked it. But there was something about the drum and bass artists that seemed to hanker for that excess, that age of excess more than the others. Because another album from this year, Four Heroes, two mm. pages, another double CD <laughs> that's like over two hours long. And there were some great moments on that record too, but it was too long, you know. Um, and it, it's, it's almost like drum and bass artists did see themselves as the natural successors to the kind of, progressive jazz fusion artists of the 70s mm. um you know Fotec also all his albums weren't double but they were always 80 minutes long mm. um too, too long too too much excess and i think they kind of almost it was like a big souffle that kind of you know flopped in the middle it didn't quite stand up it didn't have the rigor to make it stand up as a great album and i don't think many of those albums have stood the test of time as classic albums, as, as a consequence. No, I think you know. I think they're fascinating follies, though, and I think sometimes mm. it, it throws up ideas, and, and that was what I was kind of interested in. And obviously, 
you know, drum and bass had kind of entered the mainstream in a way in that um, Bill Nelson had done a drum, drum bass album in 96 that was actually pretty good. And David Bowie had done Earthling in 97, which was strongly influenced by drum and bass. And, and one of my favourites, actually, was um, Walking Wounded, Everything But The Girl, where actually they did make a beautiful album that seemed to come out of both drum and bass and bossa nova, weirdly. But it was a really nicely shaped album with gorgeous melodies, heartfelt sentiments. And yeah, you know, if I think of the drum and bass era, weirdly, some of the things that I carry with me now um, are the more mainstream interpretations of it. And, and there's an album this year as well. Um, unfortunately, I cannot pronounce his name, but it's, it. But the album's Leveros, and he's a um, Brazilian artist. Um, Catano Veloso. That's the man, Veloso. And um, he'd been around since the late 60s, um, a part of the kind of experimental Tropicalia movement. And in 98, he produces this album that does indeed involve bossa nova, but also drum and bass and 12-tone ideas. Something about drum and bass must have appealed to people who'd grown up with, with jazz fusion. You know, and obviously we've got Square Pusher as well coming out around, well, a couple of years. Uh, he'd been around for a few years by now, but he's obviously someone that, again, came out of the drum and bass movement and was clearly someone who'd grown up loving jazz fusion he was a bass player after all mm. and in fact i want to i want to sort of take us into the world now perhaps more of, of electronica and idm now because square pusher made uh, arguably his first almost pure jazz influenced album this year uh, music is rotted one note but it's the other side of jazz this is the very dark claustrophobic side of jazz things that you might have heard miles davis doing in the early 70s um that very kind of luminous sound of electric pianos and 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 slightly fragmented beats dissonant tones and this is coming out on warp records this is coming out on a label that is known you know purely as an at the time certainly known purely as an electronic music album and it's it's fascinating how and i suppose the goldie kind of taps into this this idea as well that this is a time when electronic music is starting to abstract it's starting to almost kind of consume other forms of music and bring them into its sphere in order to be able to move forwards which i find really fascinating so um, we're going to talk about some other albums that perhaps come out of this this kind of world as well a bit later on. But maybe we should just talk about, or I should talk, because I'm not sure how familiar you are with these albums. Um, Boards of Canada released their classic Music Has the Right to Children album this year. Mm. So in the world of electronic music, there's some great records this year. There's Gas, a, 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 an artist I'm a big fan of, Conig's Force, Orteca's fifth LP. Muslim Gore's released about 27 albums <laughs> this year. Boards of Canada's Music Has the Right to Children, another Warp Records release. This is a record that kind of introduced, I think it's fair to say, in many ways, this record very quietly changed electronic music, changed the way pe people thought about electronic music. We still talk, I mean, I certainly still talk about you know, when I have a certain sound that I found on a keyboard, oh, it's a Boards of Canada sound, you know. Mm. And it's the way that they kind of introduce this idea of what people refer to as hauntological sounds, which are sounds that sound deliberately rusted or degraded to make them sound like they're almost playing off a kind of faulty cassette or mm. something that's kind of beaming in from the past things sounds you associate with 70s children's tv shows certainly if you're like me and you grew up in that era um things that kind of haunt you that have a ghostly quality to them and i think i can trace a lot of that back to this record music has the right to children 
I know it. I mean, I bought it at the time and I listened to it, get to it again for the show. And it's, it's one of those albums where really I'm kind of um, ambivalent. I quite like it. I mean, I, I love the use of sound. I think you're right. Some of the degraded sounds are really nice. Some of the textures throughout. I wasn't particularly impressed with the use of beats, which seemed a bit pedestrian to me. And it, and it didn't seem quite as fresh. I mean, maybe being familiar with things like Gavin Bryars uh, and so on and Eno, it didn't seem quite the revelation that people were saying. And subsequently, I guess I've preferred that kind of decayed tape sound in the likes of Bazinski or um, The Caretaker. I think he takes that approach much further than almost anybody. Um, so I remember just thinking it was kind of quite pretty. Okay, fair enough. But this this is kind of where that all started. So uh, you know, if it doesn't if it, if it doesn't blow your socks off in that sense, this is kind of the record that introduced that concept, um, certainly to to younger music makers. Well, my bloody Valentine as well, I suppose, fit into that, don't they? Um, I mean, that was now you know, my bloody Valentine, loveless like that blew me away in terms of its original approach to the guitar. You know, I, I like the Boards of Canada. I suppose that's it. I, I, I like it and could never really go much beyond that point. I think the My Bloody Valentine, that's that's a good call, actually, because that that's another record which which came out, you know, seven or eight years before music has the rights to children, which is deliberately creating that kind of woozy, um, warped record effect, which is something I associate very much with the Boards of Canada. But I suppose with them, they're doing it with guitars. Yeah. Boards of Canada were doing it very much with with keyboard sounds, and it was it was clearly electronic music. You could hear, you know, they'd grown up with Aphex Twin, um, but they'd also tapped in something something from their childhood. This use of sort of broken technology, vinyl, cassettes, um, the ghosts, you know, the obsession all children had when I was growing up with ghost photography and the, even the cover image is very ghostly. It's very lo-fi. These children in a sort of landscape but their faces have been blanked out. This spoke mm. to me of sort of public information films from the 70s or kind of 70s horror cinema or or even children, you know, those children's TV shows from the 70s, like... Children of the Stones. Children of the Stones, yeah. To me, there's something about, about Boards of Canada that's completely cut from the same cloth as those kind of things. So um, I kind of, I guess, kind of connected a, a little way to this world of electronica is the world of beats and trip hop. You know, and it's it's not a massive jump to go from, say, what Boards of Canada were doing to what Massive Attack were doing. And I think, I don't know if you agree with me, I think Massive Attack made their masterpiece this year, which is Mezzanine, mm. um, their third album. Again, another band that didn't, they weren't prolific. I mean, it's only their third album, I think, in 10 years. The first four, four songs, I think, are flawless after that the album does tail off a bit for me mm -hmm. but those first four songs um you know angel rising sun teardrop and inertia creeps are, i think are, are the pinnacle of their catalog and arguably the pinnacle of the whole trip hop catalog so i know you're also a big fan of this album so yeah no i love it I, I agree with you i think it probably is <clears throat> the best album in many ways though my favorite is um hundredth window the one that followed it which i think is Agreed. even darker it's almost like inertia creeps taken to the nth level really and it's got a much more um post-punk gothic feel but absolutely reinvented in trip-hop textures yeah. Yeah. yeah great album and what i kind of liked about mezzanine was the attention to detail when I mean, you were talking about boards of canada i think it's the attention to even 
the bass drum sound. I mean, I, I always kind of hated in a way when we would be in the studio in the 80s and people would spend 20 years seemingly on a hi-hat sound, but actually it really paid off with mezzanine that almost every single sound seemed unique to the album. You know, they'd thought mm. about everything. And I think mm. that's the thing, that as well as having these sort of, you know, great songs with powerful atmospheres, um, you just have such an attention to detail sonically. And also, uh, it's funny, I spoke to a producer, quite a well-known producer who will remain nameless about this album because he was a big fan too. And I said, what is it that makes that album so much? And he said, distortion. Almost everything has some kind of distortion on it, harmonic distortion. So even the bass drums have, are put through things like amplifiers. So yeah. they have, they have, they don't have that kind of clean you know, clinical sound that you associate with a lot of electronic music. It's everything's kind of a little bit dirty, a little bit grubby. And I suppose this is also where it does, it, it, you know, this is something it does have in common with the boards of Canada. Again, mm. everything is slightly manipulated to sound a bit low fine, a bit grubby. But I think mezzanine simultaneously sounds massive, doesn't it? I mean, it's yeah, yeah. massive. It's a lush production. Um, and I think you're right. I think 100th Window probably is actually, so I revised what I said, I think it is their best album. But at the same time, I don't think 100th Window has anything, it doesn't quite have the peaks that Mezzanine has. Teardrop, for me, is one of the greatest songs of all time. Mm. It's a song I've tried to rip off so many times. <laughs> um, and of course, Liz Fraser on, on that on that track is just sublime. You know, their choice of singers, their choice of female singers yeah. particularly, was always impeccable, wasn't it? For, you know, from... Um, uh, I've forgotten her name. The, the Shara Nelson on the first album, mm -hmm. uh, Tracy Thorne on the second, and then of course we get Sinead O'Connor on Hundredth Window. And on this record, it's Liz Fraser, one of the most extraordinary voices. Though I do love Angel. Is that Horace Andy on Angel? Horace Andy on Angel, yeah, and which yeah. is yeah. just a fantastically epic piece of work. I mean, so sinister, isn't it? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, good God, I've said it. You've said absolutely. It's okay. You haven't, said, you, have, you haven't said the F word. You've said the F word only once so far, though. <clears throat> yeah, this time. So, and also, uh, there were, you know, there was a lot of really interesting records coming out. I don't think Portis had released anything around this time, but certainly they were at a peak at this time. But we had the Uncle, first Uncle album, Science Fiction, uh, yeah. Meat Beat Manifestos, Actual Sounds and Voices. So this whole notion of, of you know, trip hop and and um again it's, it felt like a lot of these artists were really consuming other genres and bringing them in to their world you know so massive attack that mezzanine album has a very has a very post-punk element to it hasn't it well i think this is the interesting with both uncle and massive attack there's a strong arty post-punk element but also there's a kind of progressive grandeur in both of them really that i, I can hear um, and I always thought with Massive Attack, you know, Angel is a great example of this, that a bit like Pink Floyd, they were one of those bands who could make a little go a long way. So Angel musically is very, very simple, but it sounds massive. It feels massive. Um, and I think the same goes for a lot of the Uncle work, that it almost had a kind of stadium rock pomposity in there. And I mean this in a positive sense with both um, Uncle and Massive Attack. And... The collaboration with Tom York on that album, I think it's Rabbit in the Headlights or Rabbit in Your Headlights, which is really haunting and one of the best mm. Tom York-related pieces I've heard. Um, and I remember, yeah, being quite excited with these albums. And I think that you're right. They seem to be bringing in elements from the past, but completely reinventing them in a <clears throat> 1990s fashion. It felt as if the music was going somewhere fresh, really. And um, the distortion point is interesting because I think that 
from Acton Baby onwards, the 90s partly becomes characterised by distortion. So a lot of bands, when they're changing their sounds, basically added distortion to everything. It almost became that sound, whether it was a Brian Eno production, whether it was a Mitchell Froome production. You know, I think of his production on American Music Club's Mercury or his production for Suzanne Vega. It seemed that an awful lot of distortion was used, but also different tape grades. I remember Mitchell Froome talking about the fact that he would love to go into um, a huge 48-track pristine studio, but then actually impose a sort of four-track Tascam sound within it. So he'd fuse um, hi-fi and lo-fi really in quite interesting ways. But there was this real kind of... Uh, this is what typifies a lot of the sounds of the um, the 90s, really, this move mm. towards distortion. And, of course, that's why the Mark Hollis album sounds completely outside anything that's happening during this era. And I suppose that is... A, you kind of referred to it there. It kind of is a reaction almost against the previous decade, the 80s, where sounds became very clean and very processed. Um, and here now they're becoming processed, but in a different way. They're kind of processing it through, through dirt and through distortion to give them more characters, to get away from that kind of very clinical 80s sound. Um, yeah, I was going to say, sometimes I think that it's used um, maybe too self-consciously. I kind of felt that, you know, with U2 and to a certain extent bands like R.E.M. and maybe even Eels, that these were bands who were really essentially great rock bands and great composers. But in order to feel fresh and relevant, you know, I'm thinking of... Um, Certainly the mid-90s, New Adventures in Hi-Fi, was it, from R.E.M., where effectively, to indicate a change, they just pour lots of distortion on every instrument and the vocals. It seems to sort of lack subtlety. It's almost a self-conscious nod to what's going on. I guess it's the equivalent of Neil Young's Landing on Water, you know, in 1986, which I don't mind as an album, but it seems to use every 80s production technique going and I think that was what happened to an extent during this time. You know, the, the flip side of it that was negative is that in order to appear different, bands would just load distortion on the work. And essentially, they were producing pretty much the same as they were producing two or three years earlier. Well, let's let's talk about REM because you, you've put them on the list. I, this is a band I know very little about. I have to say they've never been on my radar. I've never heard anything that, that interested me at all, I'm sad to say. Not that I disliked it, just never particularly appealed to me. But you wanted to talk about an album they released this year called Up um, because you, you felt it was is significant in their catalogue in some way? Well, I think it was significant. It was the first um, album they made after the drummer left. So this was the band as a trio. And whereas on the previous album, um, I think New Adventures in Hi-Fi, it seemed a real self-conscious nod to the 90s. It was R.E.M. trying to prove they were relevant. And it seemed overlong. It seemed as if it was making too much a tip of the hat to what was happening around it. Whereas in the 80s, you know, if you listen to albums like Murmur, there was a very natural rootsy sound yet something that still communicated in that post-punk era there was quite a hazy production and so I think that as a band they grew very very nicely up to the success of Automatic for the People which I think is a very strong piece of work um, after that it almost seems as if they feared losing relevance and I think that happens with a lot of artists obviously and and in order to regain that relevance they kind of immerse themselves in whatever are the techniques or the ideas of the age or they're maybe not fully understanding why it works and with this album it was just the three of them 
And it was more naturally experimental. You know, the influences in there were much more people like Brian Eno or Leonard Cohen. This was almost them going back to what they personally liked. And not only that, um, they're using drum machines in place of the drummer in a lot of cases. So it had a very different sound for an REM album. It had a lot of electronics. There's even a kind of kraut rock element to this, a slight nod towards Kraftwerk or Cluster. Um, and it's just a really nice, intimate album. And the only reason I kind of mentioned it is because I think it's one of their best albums, but it's one that completely gets ignored because it's not as self-consciously experimental as what preceded it, and nor was it as successful as many of their albums. So it's a band that have been talked about many, many times, but this album falls through the cracks. And I just think there's um, a few very strong, very emotional pieces, and, um, you know, they seem to be sort of just enjoying making music. Okay, interesting. So I suppose this comes back to this idea, you know, again, that we talked about that sometimes it's better to look at an artist's catalogue as, you know, as as a whole career and not necessarily sort of try and pick, this is a good album, this isn't so good, but just to be fascinated by the journey, you know. And so it sounds yeah, yeah. to me like what you're saying is that this album does have an interesting place in their catalogue um, in that it does, you know, it has got a distinctive quality of its own. And I think that's something that's so underrated. I get so bored with artists that they make a great record and then they just make, keep making that record over and over again, you know, mentioning no names. And I'm always fascinated by the artists, I suppose, more so that do almost try and react against what they've done before. And I've tried to do that myself in my career. You know, I hate the idea of repeating myself. And I know that we feel the same way, sure. you know, when we work together in No Man as well. We're always looking for a way to make every album have a purpose to exist. What is the point of just making part two of an album that you've already done, even if it's the most popular album in your career? Um, and so it sounds to me like what you're saying is that REM is a band that, that kind of, you know, didn't do that. They always tried to do something a bit different. Well, I think so. And again, it's a band of that stature. I think it's one of the reasons why, you know, you 2 never been one of my favourite bands, but I've always appreciated the fact that they've challenged themselves. Yeah, Radiohead, of course, being the poster child for that, you know, doing something, taking a U-turn from what you've done before and doing something completely different. Well, they kind of hang heavy, don't they, in 1998? Because 97, to an extent, in rock has been dominated by OK Computer. And in 98, you get the debut EPs by Muse and Coldplay, two bands who are going to take that Radiohead aesthetic into a certain direction. And of course, Radiohead by 2000, they do exactly what we talk about. Kid A is that brilliant U-turn that wrongfoots everybody. And I remember at the time I was, you know, I loved the Benz and I really liked OK Computer, but I didn't think it was this um, truly innovative work. And strangely enough, Kid A is exactly what I think people thought OK Computer was, because this really is an uncategorizable, innovative rock band doing something completely fresh with a rock band template. I completely agree. I mean, I will love Radiohead forever for just that career move, even if I don't like all their records. And I, and I do, ultimately, I do feel sometimes like they get a free pass to do almost anything mm. and get and get critical acclaim. Um, I think that that move they made from when they were about, they were poised to become, God forbid, the new U2 after yeah. OK Computer, and they did completely wrong for everyone with that that, that pair of albums, Kid A and Amnesiac. Um, 
I will love them forever for doing that. Um, so, and I think that's when you you start to use words like integrity about an artist. Sure. It's a word. It's a word you would use about Mark Hollis, no question. It's a word you would use about someone like Kate Bush, no question. Peter Gabriel. These people don't care about pleasing their fan base or repeating themselves or maintaining commercial success. They simply don't care. They are on an artistic path and they follow it. Yeah. Well, what's extraordinary as well is that Kid A and Amnesiac, which you know I think are two of the most extraordinary albums they've released, they were number one in America, let alone mm. Britain. You know, these were hugely influential and successful works, and absolutely no concessions to commerciality whatsoever. Well, again, and it goes back to you know an album you've already mentioned, an album like Tales from Topographic Oceans or Jethro Tull's A Passion Play, also being number one records. You know, yeah, clearly, yeah. O- clearly off the back of earlier you know, more accessible or more mainstream orientated records. But it's fascinating when something like that can happen, isn't it? That that, an, that a band, an artist has so much momentum behind them that they can release something willfully uncommercial and still sell bucket loads. And I suppose in a way, R.E.M. are another example of a band, or U2 are another example of a band that kind of dabbled with more experimental, experimental music and still managed to take it to a mainstream audience, although I think much less convincingly personally speaking. Yeah, I know what you mean. You know, Bowie, I suppose, as well, is the ultimate poster child for that. You know, when you realise that he produced Lowe within five years of Ziggy Stardust. Yes, and people forget, of course, that Lowe was considered a commercial disaster at the time. It's interesting. Well, I think we we can maybe dovetail nicely into the fallout from OK Computer here because one of the things that we we are going to talk about is, um, you know, we always try and talk about what's the state of progressive music in any given episode. And of course, OK Computer did cast a long shadow on a lot of what we might now consider to be um, progressive music or, or post-progressive music. What's interesting is how we do have this influence of the old ideals of conceptual rock music coming into kind of coming into the into the sort of in contact with kind of the fallout of Britpop in a way, isn't it? So you do have bands like Radiohead making OK Computer. But we also have some interesting other examples. And I think the preeminent sort of folly of this year that's kind of a mixture of Britpop and progressive rock is the Manson album, Mm. Six, which still sounds mad to this day. And I love this album. I love the fact that it is, you know, a a willfully uncommercial move for an artist to have made having had a number one album in the, in the previous, with the previous record return of the the great Lantern, which in its own way is quite epic. But here we have an album that barely has what you, anything you would describe as a song on it. It has Mm. these long um, modular pieces that have all these different sections to them. And I think what's fascinating is that, and I've spoken to Paul Draper about this. I don't think he was necessarily aware of the kind of influence or the heritage of the kind of progressive rock, you know, approach to making music, this kind of modular way where you can take different sections and string them together. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, I bought it, again, I think, from Manchester R Price. Jeff, at this point, didn't give his opinion, I have to say. And um, I was struck, one, by the similarity the cover had to Genesis, Marillion and so on, and two, as you say, by these connected short and long pieces that were entirely, you know, was it a reinvention of the progressive wheel? But it it had a very strong progressive rock language. I mean, partly because it has quite a beautiful and lush sound. And um, 
What I liked about this album, I probably ultimately preferred the Goldie out of the two Follies this year, but what I really liked about this album was um, Draper's got a great sense of melody, even if the mm. songs aren't obvious. He has a tremendous, epic, tuneful approach to melody. But the guitar, I thought, was really interesting. This was oh, one of yeah. the first albums for a long time where I'd heard sounds where I was thinking, OK, what's that? How did he do this? You know, this was when I'd listened to guitarists in the 70s, 80s, and that kind of post-punk vocabulary, people like John McGeoch, where they do something completely fresh and unexpected. And I thought the guitar playing on this was really quite remarkable in places. Um, so I really, I, I enjoyed it and I enjoy it. I just think it was um, a really rich folly. And as you've said, maybe it was entirely kind of reinventing the progressive wheel. And that's how they managed to do something different with it. And, and the same maybe could be said of the likes of Ronnie Size and Goldie, because, you know, how aware would they have been <clears throat> of anything from Stan Kenton to Yes or what have you? I don't know. I think I think that's key. It's like the, one of the reasons the Manson record is so progressive in the true sense of the word is I don't think it was influenced by the original generation of progressive rock. I think it was more influenced by people like Prince or or Bowie or Roxy Music or or Radiohead. And and yeah. that's key because they've created something which has got true progressive rock ideals and true progressive rock credentials, but without referring to any of the old fashioned stuff at all. It seems very modern. The production is very modern. I mean, this is a big budget record, but at the same time, it's got like, for example, the middle of the record, which is split into two, you know, pretension friends sweets it's got a four minute piece for harpsichord and spoken word <laughs> yeah. interlude by tom baker i mean it's yeah, yeah. none more pretentious and pompous and i loved i love that about it um it's interesting you you mentioned your story about when you bought the goldie record i mean i remember buying the manson six record from sister ray in berwick street and i remember when i went up to ask for it he said the the guy behind the counter said to me, I think you have to do this in a northern accent, even if it's London, don't you? Because it just sounds better. <laughs> he said, Do you want the free poster with that? And I said, Well, what's the poster of? And he said, Looks like a fucking Marillion poster. <laughs> with as much contempt as he could muster. And they would uh, do, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's it. Even the front cover has got the whole and again, I think completely unwittingly, it looks like an old school progressive rock album cover doesn't yeah, it with yeah. all the little the details logo, everything you know and i think that, i mean i saw them on this tour as well and they they kind of shied away from doing six they did a lot of the hits really mm. um and they had a great communication a real sense of communion with their audience actually um you know quite an interesting band um, very devoted um, audience. They're fascinating. They're, they are fascinating because they had such an incredible sort of ardent fan base and still do, you know. Mm. And, I, and I think they were very much seen as outsiders, even as they were having the number one albums and they were kind of lumped in with the blurs and the, you know, whatever else was going on at the time, the sort of menswears, you know, the real also rants. They, they were one of the best selling artists of all from that, from that group, that generation of sort of Brit pop groups. But they managed to carve themselves out a really unique place that I think gave them longevity. It's given yeah. Paul longevity. I mean, people still, you know, adore his whole kind of songwriting approach. And he has a fan base in a way that I suspect that the lead singer of Menswear doesn't, you know. Um, or even Damon Alburn perhaps doesn't have quite that level of, of fandom about, yeah, about what he does. Yeah, the um, support. Well, I think what's kind of interesting about what you say, though, is that maybe... They reinvented that wheel through listening to the likes of Prince Radiohead. Whereas Radiohead, on the other hand, 
I think, knew the background. You know, when you hear elements of King Crimson or progressive ideas in Radiohead, you sort of know they've heard that. That is your second Robert Fripp reference by proxy, but I'm just counting them up. Yeah, people will be drunk at the end of this. There's no doubt. Yeah, carry on. So, you know, you can hear the Crimson, the Queen, the Gabriel, um, the fact that they are aware of classic rock. And in some ways, OK Computer, which had a, a very fresh and unique visual identity, they've learned from it. So, you know, if um, Paranoid Android in some ways is 1997's Bohemian Rhapsody, it also has qualities that are completely different from Queen. I think they've studied rock history and they know not, you know, what not to do. Manson, they're inventing it themselves. So they're going for everything because it's almost as if it's never happened before. So they don't know where to stop. That's yes. what I kind of like about it. And the same, I suppose, with the Coldy. The Goldie, they do not know where to stop. They do not know what is ludicrously pretentious. Because I think, you know, one of the problems with you and I, we always follow our muse, but to an extent because of our listening and maybe because of our sensibility, we may sometimes pull back. That's, that's a very interesting point. I think we are aware of what might be seen as ridiculous because I think what you're saying is, you know, if you're aware of the historical precedents, then that makes you perhaps shy away from from doing things that are that you you kind of understand will be seen as ridiculous but sometimes that's not always a good thing sometimes yeah, yeah. it's nice to, sometimes it's nice to be kind of ignorant of what's cool and what's what might be seen as as going too far um and i think this is a great example isn't it you're right the the, the goldie is another good example of that goldie's saturn's return and manson 6 are so ridiculous they seem to be almost completely unaware of their own ridiculousness and that kind of makes them fun and yeah, you yeah. kind of love them you love them more for it whereas I I think Radiohead are right. For me, Radiohead clearly modelled themselves on the Pink Floyd uh, kind of approach, that kind of intellectual call, you know, not mm. putting a foot wrong. But sometimes it's fun to put a foot wrong, isn't it? Sometimes it's it's nice to go for the absolute ridiculous folly and and fall and fall, and risk falling flat on your face. Yeah, and I, and I enjoy that. And I think that sometimes, as you said, perhaps we were always too aware to be that ridiculous. And so this is one of the reasons why Draper and Goldie for me, you know, deserve an awful lot of praise this year because they're bringing back, as you've said, that fun, that unexpected excess. But I think I think in 2020, it's very, very hard to pull off something like that. The attention spans are so much shorter. The focus on new music is very much more sort of refracted with so many records coming out every week. People only really listening to little you know, bite-sized chunks of music these days. I think it would be hard for a record like Manson 6 or Goldie's record to even, you know, resonate uh, in the mainstream these days. I might, I might be wrong. Anyway, but let's move on. Um, so let's just name check a few other... We mentioned the Mark Hollis record, a few other solo artists that released albums this year. Uh, Tori Amos from The Choir Girl Hotel. Joni Mitchell, Taming the Tiger, Rufus Wainwright, self-titled, presumably his first album, I guess I yeah, might yeah. say. Yeah. Uh, Jeff Buckley's posthumous sketches from for my sweetheart, The Drunk. Uh, Elvis Costello's collaboration with Burt Bacharach, Painted from Memory. That's yeah, a lovely album. Robbie Robertson's Contact from Un Underworld or of Red Boy. Uh, something you want to say about that album, Tim? Because I didn't know about that, but you wanted to Well, that that's record. another interesting album where he um, he's an artist I quite admire because he's completely reinvented himself several times so then also we we talked about uh, rem but other big mainstream artists to release albums this year madonna's ray of light 
I would say probably her her best record, produced by William Orbit, and I think uh, it was a great great collaboration for her. Air's Moon Safari, their first album. I'm a big fan of Air. Um, yeah, very good album. It's a beautiful record. I mean, they're an interesting artist, aren't they? Again, they're coming from kind of DJ culture, but they, they've got this element of kind of easy listening, Burt Bacharach, Serge Gansberg, and they're kind of putting the two together to make this very kind of easy listening or perhaps queasy listening mm. kind of modern electronic take uh, on those kind of artists, aren't they? And and the 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 sort of Gallic quality, I think, obviously ends it lends lends it a very exotic quality too, doesn't it? The kind of Frenchness that they have to the point that they even describe themselves <laughs> as a French band is kind of like part of their name, yeah. isn't it? Well, it's got, it's 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 a sweet album because it's very accessible and very frothy, but it has just the right air of melancholy at time, and I think at times, and there's also a Floydian element, of course, which becomes more prominent in the later albums. But again, it's got, it's also got that kind of slight arch radio headness as well, which makes it seem just right, doesn't it, for that era? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, <clears throat> I concur with you, Professor Wilson. Um, but what's interesting, because we were talking about obviously how Manson and Goldie are almost reinventing the sort of fusion or progressive wheel. But then the actual artists who invented it, people like Hamill, Wire, and dare I say it, Robert Fripp, they've produced albums this year, but they seem increasingly unmoored and unbothered by the mainstream. You know, Wyatt did uh, Don Stan Revisited. Hamill did an album called This, which is a really nice album. Um, Fripp did The Gates of Paradise and Project 2, I think um, their first Space Groove. Um, but these albums aren't really following the currents of what's around them. It's quite interesting how, you know, artists that once def defined, if you like, progressive and created shoots that people would follow are suddenly almost adrift. Other mainstream artists, Manic Street Preachers, This Is My Truth, Tell Me Yours, Garbage Version 2.0, Pulp, This Is Hardcore, Beck Mutations. Now, those last two are interesting artists, again, aren't they? Because they're also artists that don't seem to be interested in repeating themselves. I mean, Beck's Mutations was a follow-up to Odelay, which was very much his breakbeat album, his sample, sample, you know, sampleicious album. And Mutations mm. is is bringing in elements of Tropicalia. There's some gorgeous ballads, uh, you know, on that record. That, that track, um, Nobody's Fault But My Own, is absolutely beautiful. Um, and Pulp again with This Is Hardcore. They're very much turning their back on their kind of common people, glossy, shiny, glamorous pop personality, aren't they? This is a much much darker, more pervy kind of edge going on here, isn't there? Yeah, well, I think Pulp never really fitted in with the Britpop. They were always coming from, you know, they were older than a lot of the Britpop artists. And I think you can hear the influence of Roxy music, you know, even on their, in their big period. They don't sound like Roxy music, but there's something of Roxy music sensibility that kind of informs Pulp. So they always seemed slightly artier, slightly more removed, even when they were having the hits during Britpop. And yeah, this was um, a confirmation that they were different from a lot of the bands. And I think we always bring up the likes of menswear at this point. <laughs> Probably very <laughs> unfair. You know, menswear might be brilliant. I'm not actually sure. They're kind of the poster child for, for the sort of Brit, the sort of dredge of the Britpop scene that didn't. So Gay Dad would be another one. Yeah, yes. uh, you know, I, I saw bit, them live as well, because I think they supported yeah. Manson when I watched Manson. A bit, a bit like Northside would be seen in terms of the sort of Manchester scene, you know, coming yeah. really the arse end, you know, uh, of the scene, you know, and sort of... Pulp, so Pulp was saying, Pulp was saying, we're not menswear. 
So let's let's wrap up a, cu- a couple of other genres. Just briefly touch on so heavy music that's going on uh, around this time. Fugazi end hits. Uh, I don't know this record, Tim, but you, you wanted to mention it. I, no, I know Fugazi. Fugazi are an interesting band because again they kind of come out of the. Um, I guess the American punk scene and they get artier and more interesting as they go on and they have this kind of interlocking minimalist guitars approach and I find that you know as the band evolved they were much more post-rock than they were this hardcore punk band um and it's the thing that you were saying earlier about certain art you know boards of canada i completely take your point that when that came out that's the birth of a genre but maybe for me somebody like the caretaker takes some of those ideas so much further in a way that then interests me and i thought i always found this with post-rock to an extent as well that tortoise was seen as this great innovator and i like tortoise you know i really i've seen them live i like the albums but it never fully thrilled me. But then some of the post-rock that came after it, I got it. Okay. I just want to pick you up on one thing, too. You, you said Caretaker and Brzezinski take Boards of Canada ideas much further. They take one very small aspect of Boards of Canada and take it further. I mean, Caretaker and Brzezinski are loop-based ambient artists. Boards of Canada were much, much more than that. Yeah, but I, I suppose that's what interested me in Boards of Canada. For me, it's their use of textures. Yeah, okay. Um, also, heavy music we have from this year, Marilyn Manson's Mechanical Animals, Opeth's third album, My Arms, Your Hearse, uh, Meshuggah's third album, Chaosphere, Boris, Amplifier Worship, their first album, and Swans, Swans Are Dead, which was their last album before the hiatus, which was actually a double live album, but a double live album with virtually no repertoire from their studio records on. Uh, some interesting records there. We've talked about Swans before. Maybe because you've touched on Fugazi, I had them in the heavy music category because I don't know too much about them, but maybe I should have put them in one of the other categories I have going on here, which is the post-alternative rock category. So T- Tortoise released their third album, TNT, this year. I remember being slightly disappointed with that. I think one thing I, I agree with you on, I was always slightly disappointed with the reality of Tortoise. I'd, I'd bought the first couple of albums. I, I did like mm. the previous record, uh, Millions Now Living Will Never Die. And I kept buying the records, I mm. think, for at least a few more years. And I remember always sort of putting them on and thinking I should really love it. But kind of sort of really s- secretly inside, I was thinking it's all right. It's pleasant. You know, it's uh, it didn't really do that much for me. Um, so I, I can completely understand uh, where you're coming from, you know, when it's you lovely, that. You know, it's lovely music mm. and it's really well played, but it never thrilled me or excited me in the way I thought I should. And I'm not quite sure whether it's my expectations or a failing in the music. Uh, Sparkle Horse, Good Morning Spider, Mercury Revs, Deserter Songs. Now, that's an interesting record, isn't that? That is a beautiful record. And yeah. that's an example of a band that really did reinvent themselves. And it's really interesting that the so-called alternative post-rockers are embracing old-school Americana, old-school country rock, to the point that the Mer- Mercury Rev album, Deserter Songs, has Levon Helm from the band playing drums. But that has something different, though. I mean, I love that album, Deserter Songs, and it's so different from what they they'd done before and I like mm. the early Mercury Rev albums but they're more experimental shoegaze they're yeah. more rock they're certainly more shoegaze this has got an open emotional vulnerable sound mm. but um, there's something about it which almost has a kind of Disney prettiness it has a process sound there's something in the production that's almost psychedelic so it has the roots of Americana 
but it has a kind of emotional vulnerability and um, and a textual quality which is very different from Americana artists. And obviously, Flaming Lips, you know, with the album that followed the next year, um, do something similar but without the Americana. There was a kind of a shared sonic language between those bands. It was almost like they were reinventing aspects of psychedelia, actually. And, that you know, there's a there's a beautiful, emotional and fragile quality about both those bands. And they shared the same producer. Mm. Yeah, it, it was definitely a, a shock. I remember when that album first came out, a lot of people, you know, considered Mercury Rev to be kind of shoegazer also rands. And then suddenly just came out with this masterpiece. And I suppose in a way... That's kind of what happened with Radiohead, isn't it? Because Radiohead's first down was kind of dismissed in a way as kind of, you know, um, indie, alternative, Britpop, also rands. And then the Benz just completely transcended that and took them out of that. And I think that's what happened with Mercury Rev with this record too, isn't it? So also in alternative rock, another album, a bit more obscure, but but a band that we we really liked. I haven't, I haven't listened to them for many years, but I remember loving loving them at the time. It's 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 um, David Grubbs and Jim O'Rourke's band Gastra Del Sol. Yeah. And the previous album was wonderful. I forget the name of it now. But this is uh, an album this year called Camoufleur. Now, what's interesting about Gasa del Sol is it's alternative rock, which has come from the tradition of experimental avant-garde music. And we're talking about um, Jim O'Rourke's kind of history as someone who worked in drone music or treated guitar music, avant-garde classical music, making something which is has got enough in common with what's going on in the world of alternative and independent music to to give them a bigger audience but those influences are still there aren't they they're still mm. you're still hearing within the sort of tapestry of the music you're still hearing a lot of these techniques of avant-garde experimental music within the context of quite pretty um, mm. There's also that John Fahey thing going on very strongly in yeah, Gastro yeah. del Sol, isn't there? Yeah. Well, I, I loved this album at the time, and I still do love it. It's it's very. I think one of the things they managed to do is produce quite avant-garde music that is very accessible, very pretty. Melodically, there's a kind of Beach Boys meets Robert Wyatt quality at times, as you say in the guitar. There's a John Fahey influence. They use a lot of field recordings throughout, so you'll have the sounds mm. of nature in the background. Um, and also on this album, I remember thinking that they'd listened to Laughing Stock and Spirit of Eden. There's a for Hollis sure. influence on it. So it was perfect for me at the time. And weirdly, going back to Tortoise, I feel terrible criticising them because they're probably wonderful people and they're great musicians. But this album satisfied the itch that the Tortoise albums didn't for me. And I think John McIntyre from Tortoise is on this album. I might be wrong, yeah. but I seem to remember yeah, there, is, there right. is a connection. Yeah, he's the drummer on this record. I think what's what's really nice about them, and this is, again, where it, where, where it has a lot in common with, say, Talk Talk, is it's very unpredictable music, isn't it, in the way it unfolds. So it'll start off with this very pretty acoustic guitar voice, you know, kind of duet. Um, and the melodies are often very... I mean, you kind of mentioned Robert Wyatt, and I think, but I think it's also worth saying the melodies are very unpredictable. Mm. It almost reminds me of the sort of melodies that a band like Henry Cavill would have come up yeah, in the yeah. mid-70s. Very kind of, you know, not the obvious melodic shifts. 
Um, and so it's very unpredictable in that sense, but it's also unpredictable in, in the sense you don't know what's coming next. A song will start off with this sort of beautiful little acoustic guitar duet with a voice, and then these sort of strange orchestral atonal um, instrumentation arrangements will come in, and then it'll break down to, as you say, field recordings or electronic sound, and then something else completely different will build out of that, and the pieces sometimes are quite long. So there's an element of it always being very much you don't know what's coming next. It has this kind of cinematic sweep to it was almost and the music is like scenes playing out in front of you very very pretty but quite peculiar a pe- quite peculiar melodic vocabulary and and it fits what's interesting about it is you know it kind of fits in with what was going on with bands like tortoise and mercury rev it's mm. not a million miles away from if you like, what was the zeitgeist in 98? But I think you're right in pointing out as well that the unusual harmonies and the unusual the unusual chordal shifts are far closer to that kind of early to mid-70s experimental English, almost Canterbury scene. But, you know, I'm specifically thinking of the the Wyatts and, and Henry Cow, though I know they weren't a Canterbury band. They were sort of lumped in with it to an extent. There's a, a real kind of unexpected playfulness and prettiness. And and I think there's a sense of humour there too. And, it, yeah. it, you know, if, if only in the way the music sometimes unfolds, you know, there's very surprising, or there's almost like pranksterism going on in the music in the way that unexpected things will kind of wrong foot you. Mm. Um, and I like that, you know, I like that. It's almost a kind of Dadaist approach to, to making uh, what is actually quite easy to enjoy music, quite accessible music at the end of the day. Anyway, so just a few other shout outs for other albums this year. Some more UK Mavericks, the Divine Comedies, Fan de Siècle came out this year. I know I know you were a fan of Divine yeah, Comedies. Yeah, still am. I, I think he's a great songwriter, really interesting lyricist and vocalist. And I, I loved his sense of arrangement. And he's always been an eccentric. And luckily during that period, he was an eccentric enjoying commercial success. Definitely. Yeah. I, I need to listen to more of his work, actually. Um, Bell and Sebastian, The Boy with the Arab Strap um, and Arab Strap, uh, ironically yeah. enough. Uh, Philophobia came out this year. So all, all interesting kind of um, artists that were kind of, I guess, taking some of what we talked about with these American artists, you know, um, bands like Gastro del Sol and, and Mercury. It's a kind of almost a UK take on the same idea, isn't it? That there's this wonderfully kind of rich history of pop music, easy listening music, mm. um, intellectual rock music, um, l- the kind of aesthetics of lo-fi, um, electronica, uh, sample-based music, and and bringing it all together in a very kind of um, a way that really speaks of the locality that these artists come from. And when you listen to Bell and Sebastian, it sounds very mm. Scottish, doesn't it? Well, and no more Scottish than Arab Strap as well. Arab Strap, absolutely say. too, yes. Um, so I was going to say, it's kind of interesting, isn't it, that when we did the last year, 1989, that we saw that the 80s was kind of expanding. As the decade was ending, there were more kind of freedoms, more influences, there's more eclecticism. And I think that's also the case as we get into the latter part of the 1990s, that influences you thought had been dead and buried are being reinvented, whether it's, you know, people like Manson reinventing the progressive wheel or, um, in certain respects, drum and bass reinventing the fusion wheel. Okay, so let's uh, let's start to wrap up now, Tim. I mean, there's one other genre I just want to qu- give a quick shout out to, which is a, a genre that's very close to my heart, which is ambient music min- and minimalism, uh, which I know you're obviously a fan of too. Um, there's some good records this year. There's there's a couple of re-recordings. Philip Glass's Koyanis Katsi. He f- he finally recorded the full score, unedited score for the first time, which is 
just a masterpiece. Bang on a can, again, another reinterpretation, this time of Brian Eno's Music for Airports. It's really nice, that one, actually. I, I mean, that's one that I do come back to because it's got a slightly more acoustic vulnerability, if you like. I mean, I, I like it. For sure. And the original is, of course, a, a classic. Yeah, fantastic. Um, Thomas Kerner released Carmos this year. Again, I'm a big fan of Thomas Kerner. Um, but the one I just want to give a, perhaps a little bit of a mention to is MJ Harris and Martin Bates' Murder Ballads, which was a really, really unique proposition. This is essentially um, isolationist, very dark, ambient music with made by Mick Harris, who had previously been the drummer from, from Napalm Death, but had moved into electronic music with bands like Scorn and Lull. But here he was collaborating with Martin Bates, who'd been the singer in Eyeless in Gaza, doing traditional English murder ballads in a way that just invested them with something that was always there, but just really bringing out that sinister aspect. Very dark ambient music with Martin basically just singing songs, these lyrics which date back to things like the 17th century about the most heinous crimes. <laughs> and it's, for me, it's an incredibly powerful combination and it really works. It, it seems like it shouldn't, but it really mm. does. So I want to give it a shout. If you're curious, please do check out um, the the MJ Harris, Martin Bates murder ballads. It it's is three interesting. Albums. Uh, yeah. yeah, no, it's interesting. And I, I think Martin Bates always had that slight folkish quality to his voice. I mean, he was in yeah. post-punk um, artists, Eilis and Gazza, but they always had something of the old English folk. And he sings this perfectly. It just suits his voice. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing that you have things that could be three centuries old, completely reinvented in the present day and sounding thoroughly ominous and beautiful at the same time is it you know it's a really interesting combination because i think the sonics on this it has it has a very sort of bass resonance throughout it doesn't it mm. well that's mick's sound yeah so mick 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 harris's sort of ambient sound is is very subterranean lots of low end very very oppressive well it's also great isn't it how the english folk tradition and, and many folk traditions can be so successfully and naturally invented. And obviously, I guess you think of the folk rock era when Fairport Convention were taking tunes from the 19th and 18th century and doing something completely different in a rock language. And it's, it's fantastic when you find a new voice for something old that seems to suit both so naturally. I think that's one of the reasons why I think the English folk song, and I'm sure with it also true of American folk music too, is there's something about those songs that is timeless because they are concerned essentially with things like injustice um, mm. and, and, you know, and crime, the sort of things that human beings do to each other, the, the really horrible things that human beings do to each other. There's something universal and timeless about those concepts. So they are, you are able to constantly reinterpret them and um, and you know filter them through through contemporary sounds and contemporary influences. And this is a great example of that. I mean, these albums were quite obscure. They were released on fairly obscure labels. Um, there was three of them made over a period of time. I think the one from this year was the last of the three. And they're very much part of a past. I think you can get the three in a box set now. Um, and I just I absolutely adore these records. They just completely work for me. So, um, so let's round it up there, Tim, with our, our, our doing our traditional thing um, where we count up how many times you've mentioned Robert Fripp and King Crimson. <laughs> Uh, and I counted six this time. Uh, maybe the folks out there can correct me. The Tim mentioned King Crimson and Robert Frick six times. Now, I don't know if that's uh, par for the course or whether that's slightly less than normal, slightly more than normal. Uh, how many times did I mention industrial music? Then. That's right, folks. That's right, folks. 
Nil point. Nil, I didn't mention <laughs> industrial music once. Favourite album and perhaps most forward-looking or most influential album from 1998, Tim? What would you, what would your picks be? I can tell what my favourite song was, weirdly enough. It was um, Loveless for Hero. I found that so hypnotic. Album, I'm stuck between four, really. I think Deserter Songs is just a really satisfying piece of work, as is the Mark Hollis solo album. The Gastrodel Sol is something I still come back to. And the same with Mezzanine. I just think that was, you know, that's a, a great, bold statement. But I'm going to go in the end with Deserter Songs. As your favourite? Yeah. Okay. Interesting. I wouldn't have expected that. I mean, I, I think that album is really lovely. Um, so um, that, I think that's a very, very noble choice. Um, I'm going to go, I think my favourite, well, my favourite song of this year would be No Question, Teardrop by Massive Attack. Uh, okay, one one of my favourite songs of all time by anyone. Um, but I think as a whole, Mezzanine does fall off a little bit after the first four songs. So yeah. I don't know. Favourite album. The Hollis album is gorgeous. Manson 6 is mad and I love it. But I think, you know, the Murder Ballads album, uh, the Mick Harris, okay. Martin Bates, and also the Boards of Canada album, Music is the Right to Children. I can never get tired of, of that record. Um, so I'm kind of pussyfooting around a bit there. And no, folks, that's not a Robert Fripp reference. Um, <laughs> pussyfooting a bit there, but uh, that's the way it's going to be. Most forward-looking, what would you say arguably the most influential record from this year has been, you know, over the course of time? I mean, this is really difficult, isn't it? Um, because I think that something like the Goldie album has so many ideas in it that you're probably going to hear them in music, you know, for years to come. See, it just throws everything. I would, at I it. would completely refute that. I think, <laughs> I think that album was actually, conversely, I think it was the death of drum and bass. Drum and bass disappeared <laughs> off the radar pretty soon afterwards, and I don't think that's coincidental. What a way to go down, well, though. What a well, way to true. Go down. He definitely went down with with all guns blazing. Yeah, I'll give him that. I suppose you know, Boards of Canada. You can hear in a lot of music mm. that comes. I think that would be my afterwards. pick. Yeah, I think that would be my pick. Um, so I, I, I guess I'd say that, although it's certainly not my favourite. I think also there's an argument to say that, that Mezzanine did did impose quite quite an influence, not necessarily on music, but certainly on the kind of things you would hear on TV, you know, sync, sync music. I mean, those songs themselves were used so many times in sports programmes, thrillers, you know, just background link music. But I think it definitely is something you hear a lot in modern soundtrack music, the influence of Massive Attack and what they were doing with orchestral textures and beats and distortion. I suppose because I'm looking at it from a 2020 perspective where R&B very specifically seems to be the music of the moment. And in that respect, you can't hear much Boards of Canada or Massive Attack in the I mean, mix. That, that is true. I don't necessarily, like I did say, I don't think you necessarily hear the influence of a band like Massive Attack in a lot of contemporary pop music, but just turn on Netflix and you will hear the influence of artists like Massive Attack and Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross as well. I mean, I think they also yeah. cast a very big shadow over most of today's soundtrack music. That combination of distortion, almost industrial, there you go, I've said it, uh, <laughs> rhythms, uh, textures, orchestral music, use of samples, use of kind of disembodied voices. Um, 
it's very, very much prevalent in in modern TV and modern cinema. I would say that influence from 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 mezzanine. Yeah, and I think you're right. You know, particularly Angel and Teardrop, really that brooding Angel, and then the fragmented, beautiful. Teardrop. So yeah, I'm going to revise my opinion now. I'm going to say most influential. Yeah, well, of course, it's Massive Attack Metzany. Uh, okay, great. So we're kind of unanimous on that. I, I, th- I think I think that is a very influential record, if not on us. You know, I mean, obviously, it's been a big influence on, on our music over the years, hasn't it? Certainly me. Yes. Okay, wonderful. Um, thank you very much for listening. And we look forward to your corrections and uh, complaints uh, to this episode. Um, and uh, I hope you're thoroughly pissed, those of you who are playing the Robert Fripp uh, <laughs> uh, drinking game uh, by now. And I'm sorry, those of you that were waiting to get drunk, uh, based on my references to industrial music, that it was uh, a very poor, very poor showing. Uh, very poor showing this week. Very poor. Th- this episode, just that one at the end there, which I, I just couldn't help. Sorry. And uh, we will be back hopefully very soon with another episode. If you have enjoyed, have enjoyed listening to the podcast, please, 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 please do go and give us a rating or a review. Even better. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, goodbye from me and goodbye from Tim. Goodbye. Goodbye.